Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Dug Too Deep, the officially unofficial podcast for the Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking season one, episode five, Partings. It's the feedback episode. Aaron, how's that feedback looking? Pretty healthy. Pretty healthy. We are. This is, um, I think, as befits a rookie show, a freshman show with some uneven storytelling. There, we have got uh, we've got some uneven feedback in the feedback uh, uh, bag. Okay. The bag of feeding, as they, it was known among the Nildari, the uh, bago fed ally. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to open it up right now. If you want to, if you want to pack it full, pack pack more of it. If you want, <laughs> if I, I don't know. I'm trying to tolkify this. Fuck it. If you want to send us feedback, it's dug too deep at baldmove.com. First up is Nate in Nashville. Says I have a question about uh, Friday's episode. I believe this is the previous Friday because you know that's the way the feedback stuff works. We got some some old business. Am I supposed to believe that a white tree losing its leaves is enough for an entire nation to stop hating elves? The prior episode prior, we heard about how much the men of the islands hate the elves who are taking their jorbs, insert some MAGA statement here. And while the white tree losing their leaves and all of a sudden everyone is volunteering to go fight a war to support this elf. Did I miss something? Yeah, uh, a whole episode. Uh, (laughs) They kind of clear that up a little bit in this one, right? It's it's not the whole island that supports it. There's actually a pretty big rift there uh with about half the island so yeah i'm i'm cool with the way they told that story i will okay take the i'll take the devil's advocate then um well not really i'm gonna take the devil's advocate and then and then try to square the circle um i think you're supposed to understand you gotta understand that like these people live in an age of signs and portents they take it very seriously that's something that like i was just really got beat in my head when i was working with anthony uh the maester i work with over on the hot hot d side mm-hmm. when i when i when i wrote that uh, book on religions of westeros with him it's like a lot of times we as 21st century individuals will go back and we'll read historical accounts about the religious practices and stuff and we Think of it in the terms that we do in the modern day when we're living with science and religion standing side by side, where it's like there is a little bit of like to use a wrestling term kayfabe where like, you know, we recognize that our gods can are capable of miraculous things and can part Red Seas and can provide manna from heaven and can raise the dead. But we're also cool that not happening in an age of cell phones because, you know, there's a certain level of remove of, of, of understanding these are kind of stories and whatnot. You go back a thousand years, that distinction does not exist. Like religion wasn't something that people went to church for one part of one day of a week and just clocked in and then they clocked out. It's like, oh, what's for, you know, what's where, where are we going to go out for eat? 
you know, they woke up thinking about God. They work. They did their work thinking about God. They went to sleep thinking about God. They worked their praising and their their worship into the clothes they made, into the houses they lived in. Like it, there was no distinction between their life and their faith and the religion. In societies like that, a sacred tree losing its leaves, being the tree, the tears of the Valar, that fucking means a lot. Uh and then you go take it one step further and like they're living in a world where these gods actually they're just in one continent over and within, you know, living memory of some of these people came strutting onto their shores and like kicked ass and, and did things. So it, it, I, I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect where it's like you have to kind of go all in on the fantasy. Um and then if you take that and you think about how easily manipulated, you know, I think in my lifetime, uh, some of the wars in the Middle East, you know, how the public was kind of led along the nose pretty easily to where 90 percent of a public was on board with doing this, that or the other. Whereas, you know, maybe three months prior to certain events, you, you would get, you know, no majority support for invasion of this country, that country. It's like you, you take those things together. The fact that. These signs and portents are as real as like a news headline, the a credible news headline is to you. And the fact that they also have these political elites that they think are just better than them because of virtue of their blood and their position that they've been put on, put in by God, by the gods. And and yeah, I don't think it's very unrealistic at all because this isn't a 21st century society that's all debating about what to do on Twitter and spread, you know, it's it's not like that mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, John G says, as we now reach the middle of season one and we're getting the reports back and feedback and how different levels of familiarity to the lore in this world uh, affect the viewing, how lost some people are versus others. Let me inform you that on a lore level, the pace of reveal and the amount of show versus tell the showing is doing is specifically designed for me. Speaking of John G here. I don't think they're as amazing as some. I like them fine. The show, however, is making me more curious about the whole world than those movies or a lifetime of being a nerd with other nerds telling me about uh, these books ever did. I watch the show. I'm curious. I listen to Bald Move and get some answers, but more questions. I go to the Lorehounds, get some more answers, but more questions. And I start to delve into the wikis and the fan sites and endless writing online to learn more to the point that now four episodes into the show without ever having to read a single book. I'm starting to feel fairly knowledgeable about this entire world. Wait, but you read the whole Internet, man. (laughs) Yeah, right, 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 right. (laughs) I mean, sure, you didn't turn a page in a book, but come on. For someone like me, though, who loves the process of getting a little info from the show, but having the opportunity to keep digging and digging, and this world has so much to dig through that it seems every rock has an entire history you can look into, this level of show plus research is working perfectly to keep me fully engaged. Um, I will say that, John, I'm a lot like you. I, I describe myself as a lore whore, and that that thing that you're talking about, where you feel like you overturn a rock in this world and there's history there... That is, oh, God, that's what I love so much about Tolkien, because usually that kind of detail accumulates over a generation of multiple writers of multiple perspectives. Like think about Marvel Comics, you know, how many there are DC Comics, how many people have contributed to the lore of Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or Wolverine and how many times it's changed or Star Trek, how many different creative teams this largely sprung from one dude, all of the languages, all of the lore, all of the religion and mythos. And I think that's and and it's full of self-contradictions the way some of those other things are, too. Hmm. And 
that's to me what grabs what what hooks me into lore is when I feel like I'm kind of a lore historian where it's like I'm having conflicting accounts. How do I know which one is true? You know, it's kind of like real history without all the baggage of like, oh, my God, if you get a wrong understanding, you might start a third Reich or something. You know, it's just it's just funsies. It's all the discipline without any of the the, the societal risks. Yeah, um, that's what I'm coming to understand about Tolkien stuff. And, and I, you know, I used to think um, the Tolkien's universe was limited to like uh, several books for the Lord of the Rings. You know, not it's not a trilogy, right? It's like a six book series. Is that a thing? Yeah, actually... each each book is two books, so it's a, a six book series. Yeah, and then yeah. Silmarillion and The Hobbit, and I thought that was like all he wrote, right? Um, and that was everything. I'm coming to understand there are a lot more writings. Um, I know some of sure. it was released posthumously, but a lot of it, uh, you know, he kind of intended to fill out the world. Um, short stories I didn't know existed, like all kinds sure. of things uh, that he wrote. And yeah, he thought about this universe in detail, um, and it really shows. I mean, it's 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 I think it's beautiful like this. This guy took for like over the course of 30 years and just never stopped kind of working on this as his project. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a ship in a bottle, except for it's an entire universe. Yeah. Um, I guess similar in a way to like Stephen King does his, you know, his legendarium, like the continually expands and stuff. And he's never yeah. really thought stopped thinking about how he can connect everything together. Anyway, I, I appreciate that kind of depth of lore. And that's what really you know, that's what really attracts me to things like Lord of the Rings Warhammer, you know, Destiny, some some that some of these franchises that have these conflicting narratives that you actually got to think about. And and it's not as interesting as like stuff on Star Wars and Star Trek, where there's kind of like this official canon. And that's that's just the thing. It's like, well, you know, this is the right answer and the other answers are wrong. And eh, that's that's not as interesting to me. Hmm. Uh, getting back to John Jesus, I think the show is aiming for this because it it knows it can't fall into long info dumps about the world because it'd be unwatchable. It can't rely solely on extreme Tolkien fans and Tolkien scholars where you have to know everything extremely well to get anything out of what's happening. Uh, there aren't enough of them. It can't just cut everything out and only tell the most bare bones story for the most basic level understanding of this world either. It needs to engage at the level of people who know a little but get intrigued to know more. And maybe in the age we're in, some shows do need podcasts and wikis to go along with them. And maybe that's OK. Maybe that's a form of entertainment in our current day that we accept as valid as entertainment changes. The same way we couldn't do this show before the age of streaming and the age of Amazon's dragon layer levels of money in a way that doesn't depend on ad revenue to create that we can uh, make episodes of various links is maybe the same way we understand that some shows don't need to exist on their own and are forms of entertainment that require some level of engagement from the viewer just beyond watching it. What do you think mm-hmm. of and even John says that he's it remains to be seen whether there's enough viewers um, I don't know. I'm not sold on the idea that y- the, as presented, you can't get everything uh, out of the show without yeah. going to alternate sources. I I think shows like this are best done where the the mass public like me who has not, you know, engaged deeply with the Tolkien universe um, can get enough to get by in the show. And at times may like not understand a point they're trying to make um, th- though it when I say not understanding a point they're trying to make not like integral to the plot just like a, a side point right or like a reference they're making or something I don't need to understand every single name I hear um, but that information can be out there in other sources if I want it uh, to enrich people who the experienced people who do want to go out and seek it but I, I'm 
I'm of the opinion that, you know, some, some uh, series have tried like video game TV crossovers and that has mm. spectacularly failed. Sure. Because not everybody can engage with all the material at the same rate either. Um, you know, if, if you release an episode of a show or even a season of a show uh, and you say, OK, well, this is meant to be consumed alongside this huge Wikipedia entry and. Uh, this video game and a mobile app or something with an experience you can't expect everyone to engage with that at the same time uh, or at the same rate so like I might not get to it by the next week right I might have something going on in my life and then what do I do do I have to put off watching the next episode until I've consumed all that extra content I just think as the as you package it up and as you present it it needs to have enough for a regular viewer to grasp while also having maybe some inroads to external sources of, of information that people who really want to dig in can get. Yeah. And to be clear that, like, obviously for Amazon spending, they don't intend this to be a niche show that appeals to just, like, lore archaeologists and historians. They need this to be a mainstream hit. And I think... yeah. It's not that they're failing completely. I don't want to give that impression. I mean, sometimes, like, you know, we poke fun and are critical of the show. But like I, I the, the more I see this, the more this seems exactly like foundation where it's like there are some sturdy bones and there is a lot of good story to be told here. But they just need to kind of decide whether they want to sweat the human elements of it or whether they want to go for the big budget like all if they can do both. Great. But mm-hmm. like where I'm complaining about the show is where I think characters motivations either don't make sense or are inscrutable from a human perspective. Because these lords, these elf lords can be like high and mighty or whatever. But like, I need to understand their drama. Um, Also, it's like to John G's point, like this show rewards more research and thought, but it it can't ever require it. And also sometimes it gets in a way because like, oh, it's like Galadriel's like, you know, thousands of years old. She's had all this experience and she's been fighting this war for 500 years, but she still acts like a 19 year old. That is something that just doesn't make sense from our humor perspective. And honestly, I don't think it really even makes sense from a lore perspective. It's just them trying to have their cake and eat it, too. And it might be, you know, like uh, a side effect of them taking this material, which is very much dry historical reference or even like biblical tales and turning them into, you know, a drama and the, the same the Hollywood has the same problem like anytime they adapt like a Noah's Ark type of situation they have to get around the fact that like you know Noah's going to take his family and get on a boat and fuck the rest of the world <laughs> you know and sure. and got you know it's like that's that's hard for us as humans to understand like that's that's that is a, a crazy proposition from uh so so you you have to like start fleshing it but then you start you know you're going against the Bible canon and then that's pissing off the, so I, I, I just, it's, it's tricky. And I also question the wisdom of, you know, giving this big ambitious project to, to essentially two guys who don't have any credits to their name. They had an ambitious idea and they were yeah. really excited about token lore. And, but, and, 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 you know, again, they're doing a lot of stuff is great. Does Elrond, Gimli stuff or not Gimli Elrond <laughs> Durin stuff amazing uh-huh. I like all the Harfoot stuff uh, there's a lot of depth there and interest um, it's just they're really struggling with the the great elves and the great men mm-hmm. and yeah, I think lot, it's because they're on, is, they're not relatable yeah uh, it's it's interesting or, or it's compelling intellectually but it's not compelling emotionally a lot of the time like 
Right. That's the difference, right? Between like remembering, oh, these elves are 5,000 plus years old. Oh, they're not. Sure. You know, uh, people who are considered very fallible, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, I, I don't, you have to keep all that in your head and constantly like temper what you're seeing with that. Whereas mm -hmm. in most dramas, you can just invest emotionally as a human being into characters and feel the drama that they're experiencing. Yeah, and like it, uh, the elves have some of the same problems like Vulcans do in Star Trek because, you know, Vulcans are essentially kind of like better, more elevated humans. Um, but in Star Trek canon, like there's also the idea that the Vulcans are a little bit self-important and mm -hmm. they're a little bit too literal and they, you know, are not as adaptable. And like if you listen to the Vulcans press, then you might think that they're the greatest thing since, you know, neck pinches were invented. But you know, you see other perspectives, you see that they're kind of limited and they struggle in these other situations and it, it humanizes them because they have flaws. And I feel like elves are like the Vulcan press releases, but it's also just true. They're just better. Yeah, yeah. They're just better in every way and every fucking way. And honestly, that's something that goes back to me in high school reading a similar where I always felt for the men, these these evil men that coveted the elves immortality. Well, fucking course they did. <laughs> right. Because I covet immortality. I don't want to die. I haven't, I haven't yet woke up to the day, you know, all memes and jokes aside. And that woke up today is like, you know what? I'm done living. I just I'm just yeah. ready to relinquish my life because I've had enough. And like um, absent getting sick and old. And infirm, I think most people would like maybe maybe you don't want to live forever because that does seem like a hell. But like, I don't think many people would choose 70 years and right. then like I'm done, you know, let alone 35 or 20 or whatever short, sad lifespan some of us get. So like I that's just a basic problem. And long, short term, you don't need to grab in, in, in the course of a nine, 10 hour movie series. You don't have to grapple with that shit. But with these characters working together over the long term, you got to figure out a way to grapple with that. And if you don't do it right, I think that people are going to have their sympathies on the wrong side of things. Cause these elves are kind of insufferable mm -hmm. and they kind of got it all and they know it and they're not shy about telling other people. And it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough. These are supposed to be perfect people. Perfect people don't do that. Right. Uh, Dan from Ontario, Kingston, Ontario says just a quick, com quick comment on the meteor man. The idea that he may be Gandalf. Not that Amazon isn't capable of completely changing the timeline, but checking my 1977 edition of the Cimmerillion and uh, the of the Rings of Power in the Third Age chapter, it seems to indicate that Mithrander, Gandalf, and Curanir, which will be later named Saruman, didn't show up in Middle-earth until the Third Age. They also arrived as old men, and their appearance changed little over the years. Okay, I, I think we talked about this in some of the prologue material. Um, I don't dispute any of this information. Um, certainly the lore hounds don't either, but that's when they came in the third age. Is it possible that there some, some of these, you know, my creatures had a pre third age existence as different characters, but similar characters. Mm, like that's the, the question. And the hobbits. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even if this literally can't be Gandalf and it might not be, I mean, he's like I said, they're they're definitely painting them with with, you know, I feel like I'm watching an artist. You ever seen one of those stunts where the guy's like got both hands going and he's painting and it's like seems like completely disconnected thing. And then by the time it's in, it's connected. It's like this big thing. And it's like, oh, my God, look at this ambidextrous hero <laughs> must be an elf. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like they're doing that where it's like they're painting with both brushes, the evil and the good brush. And at the end, it's going to make something. Yeah. Um 
but they, 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 whether it is Gandalf or not, they're wanting the casual viewer to make this connection of like, oh, this is Gandalf and these are the Harfoots and they're hobbits and Gandalf loves the hobbits. So, I mean, just saying it, I mean, I feel like that unless they're just wanting us to live up their expectations, uh, that they're going to have to subvert that. But they're also with the evil brush. Yeah. yeah. It's I also kind of equally be Sauron to me um, as yeah. someone who doesn't know the histories of all this. Yeah. I feel like it keeps on like, uh, I don't know. I feel like they've added one, two, two, one and a half evil bricks for every one or brush strokes for every one good brush stroke. Because they start with him coming turn out good. Uh, uh, yeah, I, but it does because like I just keep coming back to he comes down in a giant flaming eye mm-hmm. and now he's being tracked by these weirdo Swedish death metal band mm-hmm. that is certainly coded. <laughs> you know, they're not they're not lawful good. These people tra- chasing this guy down. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. So, yeah, it's it's like I said, I, it's 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 not that we're ignorant of the lore, and, but like they could do something different. There isn't, you know, we, we don't know. We, we know what Gandalf and Saruman are up to in the third age, but we don't know much about their, I guess, that that pre wizard existence of theirs that they had in the heavens. So I think both uh, things are still on the table. Brittany says, I was listening to the episodes and I thought about people watching a show from their phones. I myself prefer a larger screen. That being said, there's no good Internet service available where I live in South Carolina. My hotspot has a limited amount of data that I use for my business and streaming things instantly kills it. Yeah, I bet streaming 4K will uh, really chew up the bandwidth. Um, I consequently watch a lot of uh, TV on my phone due to that. So for some people, it may be about not having the access to watch it on a larger screen. She says she says uh, T-ROP is one of the things she saves her bandwidth for. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just feel like by percentage, most people who are watching stuff on their phones are not doing it because they can't. They're just doing it because oh, yeah. that's how they watch. That's how they listen to media because it's convenient for them. Sure. I mean, there, there are definitely edge cases where it's like, yeah, that makes absolute sense to watch it on your phone or, or whatever. I mean, you could, you could, you could stream it on your phone and then like airplay it to your TV or something that might, that might work yeah. out. I don't know. And I, I get it. I, I'm a little precious with video because I'm like, that's the thing I'm precious about. But like <laughs> it's our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. But but like, you know, like I like music. I'm a I'm a fucking goth. I'm a vandal when oh, it comes to music. Philistine. I will I will listen to that thing for my tinny phone speaker propped up on a fucking pop it on a Oof. kitchen table while I'm making food. And I have Bluetooth speakers that would be better. And, and, you know, there's there's guys also who and, and gals who are listening to like, uh, you know, pristine uh, lossless codex on four hundred dollar microphones with oxygen free cables. And they're just cringing at the environment that I'm listening to or I'm, I'm going down the road listening to shit in my car. It's got like seventy five decibels of road noise. I get it. Like you kind of appreciate the art and the format and the medium and the way you can. But. Mm-hmm you know I, I don't know so and i would i would resist someone coming in and saying like you know if you got a pair of nice i'd be like get the fuck out of here i'm just cooking and listening to music man so <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna begrudge the way anybody listens to or watches their media um yeah but i know how i want to do it and it's definitely not on my phone yeah and i w- it is just as like there are if i listen to classic record um you know music recording in my car 
I'm not going to appreciate the way I would on a reference set of, you know, studio monitors. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not going to appreciate the production and how much fidelity and dynamic range there is because I'm not going to be able to hear it. Right. Um, yeah. Amazon is made for like a 60 inch TV at 4K. Mm-hmm. And if you're watching on, on a four and a half inch OLED screen, you know, six inches away from your eyes, it's not going to be the same experience. But if you know that and are cool with it, then I, I don't care either. Um, but I, I think that 95 percent of people watching on their cell phones is not because they're like in sub-Saharan Africa or the swamp, uh, you know, and in, in the, the, the hinterlands of South Carolina. It's just they're sitting in the door rooms and they're doing it because. You know, they're trying to fill time for 30 minutes before the class starts. You know, mm-hmm. There's a lot more rings of power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual summer badass fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, We've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was, and those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. Um, Margaret says, is it just me as Gladriel always seem like she's clenching her teeth when she talks? I don't know. What does that Gladriel sound Gladriel like? is Sindarin for she who clinches. <laughs> okay. is, is for T, for TMJ. T, what is it? TMJ? Is that the, the, the teeth grinding? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't I haven't noticed, but she is wound extremely tight. You know, you're you're if you're used to Kate Ban- Kate Blanchett's like very airy, dreamy, you know, with with a core of iron kind of performance, like this Gladrail is much more brittle and puts her iron on the outside. You know, mm-hmm. uh, she's a lot more. I don't know. I mean, she. 
she is essentially like imagine like your most traumatized war veteran who's lost comrades and whatnot. And they've they've done that for maybe two tours of duty. And it's been several years. Well, she's been doing this for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years to the extent that like she's she's everyone in her unit is like, fuck, this This is crazy. We're tired of wasting our time on this revenge quest. So I think it kind of tracks. It's just it's hard for us to imagine like what levels of fucked up and, 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 and trauma you might experience. Uh, especially when you lived in such a state of bliss, this wasn't a person who was born into a hard scrabbled world. This is a person mm-hmm. who was born into this warm cradle of, this, of, of uh, divine love and light where she, like she said in the beginning, like we never thought our joys would end. And yet they, they'd all turned to ash in her mouth so they got like super fucked. Um, and now she's trying to convince a bunch, bunch of politicians that it's still important to fight this thing. Right. Even though she can't even make this case to her own people. Yeah. So like I said, it all tracks, but it's like, it's that how relatable is that? You know, like if you, uh, you're, you're like a war veteran, uh, you're, you're white knuckling to society that appeals to, but like, there's not that many of us in society that has that kind of levels that can, and certainly not to like, she's like to the nth degree of that. So it's, it's hard to kind of like, damn, why don't you just kind of like put your sword and shield down and, and chill? Um, <laughs> because, but another thing is that she's also right. There's a uh-huh. universe where she's just chasing ghosts and wasting everyone's time and lives. And, you know, she just happens to be right in this case. So uh, Dale G says, this is more of a general question, but do you feel like some of our issues, of the rings of power are partially a result of it being released at the same time as hot D I'm a longtime Tolkien book fan. And I've watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy more times than I can count. And I was thrilled for the series. While I enjoy watching a show, I don't necessarily get excited the way I do on Sundays for hot D at the end of the day. House of Dragons is just providing more exciting television with more action, sex, drama and characters. You really form opinions on and root for or against. I understand the source materials are fundamentally different, so the shows would never be carbon copies of one another. But my ability compared to two shows week by week and the fact that Hot D is so much more engaging makes the Rings of Power seem worse in comparison. Do you think there's any truth to this? I mean, I I guess there could be. I like to think as a semi-professional television and film critic that uh, I can divorce myself from whatever else is on television to enjoy or not enjoy and judge on its own merits the show I'm watching currently. Um, but who knows? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased because I am enjoying hot D so much. Yeah, I don't, I think this is, I think if the rings of power, like I think hot D is operating about 90 to 95% of its potential. Like it's really, you know, um, and, and it's, it's not flawless because it is certainly leaving like all of the humor and warmth on the table. Yeah, mostly. And that's that's a big flaw that, like I said, like I, I said, Hot D wishes that they had something like Durin and Elrond that, that they could that they could lean on uh, and they don't. Um, and I think I think Rings of Power is operating about 75 to 80 percent of its potential. And that gap is what you're noticing, because like I, I was thinking, like we just watched up. Um, this Pixar movie and it packs an emotional wallop. I was trying to think when I was t- typing this feedback, if I had seen this uh, Pixar's up two days after I saw, I don't know, season two, the leftovers finale, 
one of the most moving, awesome experience that led. And I took 10 weeks to get to would I be like, man, I don't know. Up just doesn't seem as good by comparison because it's a cartoon. I don't think I would. Yeah. And as evidence of this, we actually saw on the exact same night, the season finale of Severance, a show that we fucking loved. And we also saw that very night, uh, uh, everything everywhere all at once. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we weren't like, damn, I would have liked everything everywhere all at once, but I just got to this very <laughs> satisfying, complete journey of 10 episodes over. And that's no, they actually complimented each other. I think just a way, a good beverage pairing to an excellent TV. Like I felt like I, I had this experience with everything everywhere all at once. And I came home and I had the perfect nightcap to that, which was the season finale of severance. Um, so I, I think that, no, I, I think that the rings of power can execute. If it was executing at the 90, 95% level, these things would be a wave that just feeds into each other because the rings of power gives you the soaring lightness and melodrama and house of dragon gives you the grays and the gritty and grungy and the morally complex and big, and you would have like this thing to kind of each, each kind of amplifies the appreciation for the other but what we're detecting is the rings of power is just not executing at quite as high a level i yeah, think that's my theory totally. but people love to do you know the who won the week type of stuff um sure and directly compare the things i i try and stay away from even directly comparing stuff like right sure you can say it's missing this one element this other show has but that show is always going to be missing something else and i don't know i feel like I, I want to judge something on its own merits. Like how much did I enjoy what it was going for? Um, how well did they execute that plan? How did it make me feel? Not like what else did I see this week that was better or worse than that? But I will say that like this, this whole discussion was a huge risk that we identified as soon as Amazon announced that they were going to go head to head with house of the dragon. Oh, sure. But I don't, yeah. Uh, it, it's like, yeah, you are inviting comparisons. You uh -huh. can't like you yeah. can tell people it's not fair all you want. But shit, you know, if if you really were afraid of that, then release it next spring when you had, you know, a clear runway. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, although I would say I after like looking at what they've put up on the screen and thinking about the Lord of the Rings universe, I don't think there's much of a comparison between what Martin is doing and what Tolkien's doing, right? Like they're, they're two different genres almost. One mm -hmm. is soaring high fantasy. The other is deep political drama. And I feel yeah. like that's like comparing house of cards to star Wars. There's just, yeah, it's, there is no comparison good... or the expanse um, to star Wars. I mean, they're, they're totally different shows, even though there you go. they might look like they're in the same genre. They're not. But having said that, I think if you were in the middle of watching Expanse and and, and uh, Empire Strikes Back dropped, you would still be like, God damn, that was a fuck. That was yeah. an awesome experience. Empire and Strikes like, Back you know, it's yeah. I'll put it up again. You know, it's like I yeah, they're different. But you I, I think you can still compare the execution. And mm -hmm. uh, it's it's interesting because like the Ryan Condal and the uh, uh, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay have similar levels of show running experience. I think Condal's got, you know, he actually had one three season show that was fairly well regarded, like an 80 ish percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Got praise from Martin and Stephen King versus these guys who, as far as I can tell, haven't done a fuck. They, they said they've been working together for 25 years. <laughs> show me their resume. Right. Like, IMDb like I think they have it. I can tell you that. 
I think they're a 25 year writing partnership the same way Jim and I are a 25 year writer partnership and that we've hung around <laughs> since our school kid and we like debated uh-huh. about Star Wars and we took a stab at making a board game once or twice and we did a Christmas special, uh, un, un, <laughs> an unlicensed Christmas fan thing for Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, I think you're seeing that like lots of enthusiasm. And honestly, the execution level is kind of amazing given their experience, but they still are having some, I think, rookie mistakes in terms of connecting things and having the motivations down. And uh, yeah, so sure. But again, I, I, to me, this this feels like a lot like Foundation season one, which I think was amazing and revolutionary, and had some great big fence swinging, uh, swinging for the fences ideas, and had some problems. And and you know, we talked to uh, uh, David S. Goyer about like you know, COVID was part of that problem, and just you know, figuring out how to adapt this big sweeping story that no one had ever done before. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, very I think this is also its tone, right? It's not. Yeah. As, it's not just some big emotional arc of characters. Yeah. It's it's more historical. And I'll say this: I think the material's harder to adapt. Like House of the Dragon. When I was reading that, I'm like, this is an inherently cool story, but it just feels like it's had all the color bleached out of it. Like it's just like this person did this person, and this person said this person. The, the, you know, like and all, so what Connell had to do is take that and add why did these people do this? If I can answer why they did this, because I know the how and what and when, but if I can provide mm-hmm. the why and a satisfying emotional why these things are happening. So I feel like his, whereas um, over on the Tolkien side, everything's just a lot more inscrutable and they're fighting with one hand tied behind their back. Cause they're trying to tell a story <laughs> that they don't really have the rights to. So yeah. they're trying yeah. to backdoor into a lot of this. It's, it's, it's a harder job. Um, but you know, I, I, some people have been critical of how critical we've been. I don't think we've been that critical. Like, I think we've really liked and 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 loved a lot of the stuff in the show. But there's some stuff that's just kind of leaving us cold. And I mm-hmm. think they can get that fixed in season season two. Um, I, mean, I did compare it directly to The Walking Dead last week, but you know, yeah, it was pretty rough. I I sucked my teeth on that one. I thought, hey man, <laughs> I call it like I see it. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's move on to Jamie H. It says, I'm hoping you can help me out with something. So the Numenorians were originally taking five ships with 500 soldiers over to Middle Earth. So roughly 100 guys per ship. After two of the ships get blown up, I'm assuming only 300 guys are going now in the remaining three ships. I don't know why we're making that like. Uh, yeah, anyway, they're taking horses. I'm assuming food and provisions for the people and the horses. We just saw that inside the hold of one of the ships where Kim and used the rum or jet fuel to blow it up. Uh, but looking at the ships as they appear in the surface, which certainly don't look like they each had 100 people on deck, none of them look big enough to hold anything below, down below, uh, d- down below, let alone horses and barrels of jet fuel. How do ships work? Am I not supposed to think about this too hard and focus instead on how incredibly beautiful the ships look as they unfurl their sails? Um, what do you think about this? I really don't know what. You know a lot more about the age of sail type ships than I do. Uh, how, how you're goddamn right. How big do they look on the outside as compared to their cargo holds? Um. Well, so there's stuff underwater, and that's usually where in the that's usually where the holds are, and there could be multiple decks. Like to me, um, the deck that we were on is probably where the crew would sleep. And these these casks of oil, I don't know whether they're cooking oil or their lantern oil or maybe their combat stores or whatever. 
um, that would be like not down in this deep hold where you would store like the long term provisions and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. really heavy, bulky stuff, ship stores, extra lumber, things to make repairs. The other thing is in the age of sail, as you mentioned, that the British Navy allowed 14 inches of horizontal space and about six feet of vertical space for each sailor. Have you ever seen like, Jesus. you know, the Atlantic slave? Yeah. So like, have you ever seen this? And I hope this is an indelicate comparison, but it's the thing that pops in my mind. Like you, you ever seen those like um, the, the, the Atlantic slave trade images where you have like all these people just stacked like lumber, yeah. you know, like the outline of how many people you could fit on a ship. That's how the British Navy stored their sailors. The difference is these people could like they only spent like six hours down there and then they got up on deck. They were yeah. well fed. They were all taken care of. They had hammocks. They weren't just laying on the bot in chains. It's it's not the same. But like that just shows you how many people you can cram into these ships. And if you've ever seen like the movie Master and Commander, the first five minutes, of that's a brilliant illustration at the ship at night. And you see these all these sailors are just hanging in these all these asses are just free swinging in these these hammocks and they're touching elbow to elbow, ass to ass, mm-hmm. like head to foot head to foot um they're just crammed in there so you can cram a lot of people into the hold of a ship um but i'm with you because these are like almost like those greek style like there's like they're like some kind of weird blend between like these like more eastern junk type ships not like junk and like the garbage ship but that's the, the name you know these these full batten sea uh, uh the sails and the shape of them and like uh, some kind of like Spanish or Dutch galleon and also like a Greek trimary. What what those, those long skinny kind of like rowboats, mm, like a yeah, like a yeah. Viking or or boat. They're like this weird unholy mix of all these things. Mm. And also, yeah, I, I think you're not supposed to think too hard about it. You know, it's it's like, I mean, if that's the case, you're probably not putting another 50 people from each boat onto each for, from each of the blown up boats and the horses boats, you're gonna have right? horses for each of these guys because like the other I mean, thing is like a, like 14 inches ass to ass like yeah you're not gonna be able to fit any more people in there right it, all room is accounted for it also seems like they're counting all the sailors as soldiers which is mm-hmm. kind of historical yeah. like when the british navy would land like they had dedicated the royal marines you know in their red coats and they were dedicated they, they didn't really at best, they could clap a hand on something and pull it, but they weren't seamen. They were just mm-hmm. there to essentially prevent the crew from mutinying. And when there was, uh, you know, action, they would get up in the mast and sharpshoot the other other ship. And when they would, you know, do some kind of amphibious assault, they would be the primary assault force. But the sailors were expected to join in, too. You know, their boarding axes and their pickaxes. And I, I felt like. When I when they said 100 soldiers, they were counting all their sailors as if they were soldiers. You wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Like if 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 the if the British Navy was saying we're going to land 100 soldiers, they're talking about like the Royal Army that they're going to carry and transport ships and then land. That's 100 soldiers, not counting the sailors. So mm-hmm. it's their thing is in a real invasion force like this. You would have like military escort ships and then you have just transports that sure. would have the horses and the food and the supplies because why the fuck would you have a ship that's designed just for fighting also to be a cargo ship? But again, yeah, this is a yeah. fantasy show. I don't really know that you're supposed to think about all this stuff. <laughs> okay. Because like the other thing is, like again, Numenor is a very powerful sea race. If they wanted mm. to send five ships, blowing two ships up would not stop them. 
they right. would be like, you know, imagine the U.S. Navy uh, at one of their big naval things and they're going to send this uh, aircraft squadron out, an air- aircraft carrier squadron out and two destroyers get blown up. They'd be would they be like, oh, fuck, we can't do the thing we want to do. Or would they bring in destroyers? No, they I thought didn't make sense. A lot of sense either. Anyway, Max from Winnipeg says, like many people watching the show, I'm a huge fan of Pete Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy and a massive fan of the books. The films have been something that me and my family have collectively enjoyed and shared over the past couple of decades. And our love for the films have taken nearly all of us to New Zealand at one point in time or the other. You've done the pilgrimage. I'm jealous. I've really wanted to go to Middle Earth myself and uh, lay eyes on it. I actually lived in Wellington from 2017 up to June of this year. I moved there because of Middle Earth, but stayed because New Zealand is amazing. God damn it. I'm getting so jealous. Mm -hmm. That's that's the plan that I wanted to do in my mid 20s. And here I am still in Ohio. Anyway, all that's to say is I've very much been looking forward to the series. The show, though, thus far has been a bit of a roller coaster in terms of my enjoyment, though. Uh, at the start of the week, I sat my mom down to watch the first episode. She was moved to tears and so happy to be back in Middle Earth. Watching with her gave me that feeling of having this amazing shared experience with my family again, and it had me genuinely looking forward to episode five. But after his most recent episode, which is my least favorite thus far, I'm seriously considering buying a one-way ticket out of the Grey Havens. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. There's things I like about the show. I care a lot about the world and what's happening. I find the lore drops delightful and a lot of cinematography to be breathtaking. I just don't care about the characters and their relationships with one another, with the exceptions being Durin, Elrond, and possibly Nori. The Tolkien notion that even a small of us can change the fate of the world is kind of lost on me when I can't truly connect to any of the characters. Especially when we're talking about with Galadriel, we're certainly not talking about the smallest of people either. No. Uh, Even the most powerful, perfect elf person (laughs) can change the world. Uh, the emotional stakes were so abundant in Jackson films and the Lord of the Rings are completely missing for me in the show. My enjoyment thus far has been exclusively plot driven. Uh, also, if I have to sit through one more scene asking a group of 40 extras to stand and fight, I'm going to stand and fight this. And someone saying a war is coming has become such cliched in every big name streaming show that I die so severely inside every time I hear them that I'm about to pass into the shadow realm. Uh, keep up the great work and maybe see you all in Valinor. Um. Yeah, I. Th- I mean, I said I think these are all real, genuine problems with people engaging with the material because mm-hmm. it's not like the Lord of the Rings, which was essentially a ragtag group of people who were down on their luck and backs against the wall, you know, having to team together. Like we're talking about the elves at the height of their power. We're talking about men nearing the height of their power. We're talking about hobbits, not even kind of like fully evolved yet. Dwarves at the height of their power. Um, And we haven't even gotten to the inciting event. You know, is it meteor man? Is it the creation of the rings? Um, And we're five episodes in. So like, I think it's understandable for people to be feeling this way. Um, But if they do things right, I think this I, I think this this time will be rewarding. The problem is I don't think they're doing this part right, because I think you're supposed to start to fall in love with Isildur and his family and really be invested in their fates. I don't know if you listened to the last podcast recorded. Mm-hmm. Fuck Isildur. Yeah. He's the worst kind of dork, self-important dork, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. uh, his sister is just going to be canonically wrong. You know, mm-hmm. and like like she's, you know, like you don't have to think too hard to think that she's just going to be wrong about everything. 
Uh, Elon Deal is a talking at both sides of his mouth politician. Um, and Gladrill, we've already talked about Gladrill <laughs> and Gilgalad and all them. Uh, it's rough. I don't know. Elon Deal looks positively uh, benevolent compared to Farazon. I'm I'm looking at Farazon and I'm like, okay, this is the guy I'm not supposed to like. He's the politician. He's the lying snake. And then there's Ellen Deal, who I think is a lot more genuine. Yeah. And I'll push back because I, I, you know, usually at this point in the season, you know, especially people who are new to Bald Move, they'll be, I'll, I'll start getting this mattering of like, well, if you hate the show this much, why are you even watching it? I don't hate the show. I like the show a lot and I'm hoping it's going to be better in second season. And it's going to be so rewarding if it is better in second season to hear us like 100% praising the show uh, because you know that we saw the problems. We weren't just blind loving it. Okay. And on the other hand, the people who have been like having problems with season one, if season two comes around and it gets worse or doesn't improve, they'll feel vindicated because like they've known it's just just the way like <laughs> it's just the way the podcasting game goes, man. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I think this show is good. I think next season will be even better. It definitely has some growing pains that can be resolved. And the beauty part of it is we talked about this many times. The execution of season one is not important because when you get to season two and they start executing at a higher level, you won't remember all the clunky things about season one. You'll just remember the moments that they want you to remember the time that uh, Halbrand and Galadriel clasp elbows and the time that Isildur finally tied his rope knot right. And, you know, like you will remember the high points that they want you to remember. And those are the things that will build on season two. And you won't remember how clunky everything was. Conversely, if it gets clunkier, it just will all fall apart on its own weight. And we all get to laugh about Jeff Bezos spending a billion dollars <laughs> on a beloved franchise and failing. There's no real sure. downside here. Right. OK. Yeah. Unless unless you're a poor Tolkien fan caught in the middle. So we got a lot of rings of power to ponder. We'll be right back after this short break. And now let's dig a little deeper on Doug Too Deep. Um, let's see. Oh, Max concludes this is PS. It sounds like some filming will be done in Auckland, New Zealand for season two. After all, I don't he didn't hmm. include a source on this. So I don't know. I always found it very skeptical that they were just getting wholesale thrown off of New Zealand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, James Cameron can't own that entire island. Come on. No, I, I think I think uh, it's mostly probably costs. Like, do we have to go back? Yes. multiple units, multiple characters, or can we go to like an iconic scene that we haven't seen before with a few of our characters and get that like that is probably smart money saving. Um, and I, I think it's just like, just from a PR perspective, uh, I think most Tolkien fans have, you know, as, as we saw from previous email or an almost spiritual connection to, New Zealand and it being Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like this heresy that you would try to do. Uh, you would try to film a Lord of the Rings project in any any place else. And I think the backlash of just abandoning New Zealand as Middle Earth for the rest of the project would be not worth the couple million dollars you might save. It seems to me. Yeah, no, you're you're probably right. I wouldn't take the chance if I were. Amazon, I would want to try and film it I'm there just thinking, as much so as like, possible. At, at my present income level, if I'm Jeff Bezos and I'm budgeting uh, a, a high school production of the Cimmerillion and the, the play director comes up and is like, okay, Aaron, 
you've got $500 in this project. If you can see your way to 750 next season, we can make this a and 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 if I'm Jeff Bezos and I'm like, you know what? Nah, fuck you. Make it for 500 bucks. Then I get what I get. Like this guy's mm-hmm. worth 250 billion dollars. <laughs> That's after the divorce. Yeah. Yeah, po- yeah, he made it all back <laughs> during the pandemic. So it's like, yeah, right, like right. You, you can buy a few first class tickets uh for people to go to New Zealand and and capture capture some of those New Zealand photons on on digital yeah. film, right? You can you can afford to check a few bags with cameras in them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This this I'm just saying. Um Entropy says cards on the table. I haven't watched the Lord of the Rings movies, nor have I read the books. I'm coming in colder than Ice Station Zebra on this one. I'm only watching to see how five hundred million dollars looks on screen. Having said that, do you think uh, that the elves are just boring? They take up a huge amount of time on the show and it feels like everything just drags when they're on screen. The race appeals to ha- appears to have no selfish motives, no real sexual desires, not much humor. This adds up to a race of people who just kind of appear to exist. Thousand year lifespans seem torture to me. Um. Yeah, no, I, I we've talked about this. Like, think about was Legolas is everybody's favorite character coming out of Fellowship. No, he was he was one of the coolest characters. He's the one of the coolest characters, but he probably wasn't ever anyone's favorite unless you were like, no. I don't know, a, a 10 year old that that uh, just like bow and arrow a lot. Um, sure. I think I think that like in in the fellowship that you really uh, fellowship you really cared about the hobbits and you cared about Gandalf, and then you know Gimli and 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 Legolas were kind of like comic relief, and mm-hmm. they developed relationships in the second movie and and all that because like one of my points is I think elves are only interesting when they're in juxtaposition of dwarves and humans. Okay. Yeah. Um, otherwise, they are they're just perfect people. Uh, making perfect craft and they're smithing things that are gorgeous and their blacksmiths look like, you know, they're they stepped out of uh, Abercrombie and Fitch ad. Uh, their hammers look like, you know, you would use to serve. I don't know, they, they would not look out of place on the sitting on a table of a king's banquet. It's like just everything is just like so otherworldly that. It's only funny when you've got like, you know, the hobbits rushing in on Elrond's council being like, hey, you got all you, all you important stuff shirt guys are talking and you left us little people out of it. Rah, 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 rah. Uh, it's only funny when like Gimli is poking fun at uh, a Legolas and Legolas. And then you see that like Elrond's the only elf that feels like he's got any life to him because he's got mm-hmm. Durin to bust his chops a little. Yeah. You know, uh. Galadriel will be much more interesting with Halbrin challenging her than when she was just this like this this frosty vengeance queen. So I yeah, I, I think the elves um I think the elves work better as poetry and stirring mythological figures and books than they do as p- things flesh and blood people care about on screen. Um mm-hmm. and, and they need to be opposed by those real, more grounded flesh and blood people. Uh, Raphael says another superb analysis by you in the c- series. Well, thank you. While the writing for me is still an underwhelming C minus, I've all C minus ish. I've still enjoyed the series and anxiously await the next episode. My underlying concern is the pacing of the show and the specific use of the mystery formula. The same approach that Lost followed, where viewers are hooked on the show mostly for reveals. What is the island? Who are the others? While Rings of Power is not there yet, more than halfway through the season, it feels like they're still setting the stage. 
We don't know who the stranger is, who is Adar, what's the deal with Halbrand, where is Sauron, etc., etc. The new mystery elements have been added, and with only three episodes left, how would you feel if none of these mysteries are revealed by the end of Season 1? While not expecting them to reveal all mysteries, I would not be satisfied if at the end of Season 1 we are still exactly where we are right now. I feel like the story could move forward a little faster without taking shortcuts. Am I being impatient? I mean, you're asking a guy who watched six seasons of Lost and was hooked for about five of those. So I can tolerate a lot of questions and a long wait. Or Although after the experience with Lost, less so. Um, mm. I will say that soured me a bit on these uh, ever snowballing uh, mysteries. But I, yeah, I, I mean, it, it feels like logically the break for the season is the time to answer at least some questions, but just kick open some more doors. I think we'll be good. I think by the end of season one, we need to know who the stranger is. Okay. And I think by the end of season one, they have to have forged the rings of power. <laughs> well, this right? is all dictated by the books, right? Like the, there, there's a story that they need to tell an X number of seasons because that is the story in the books. So there are logical breakpoints, I guess. I, I just don't know what those are. And I feel like a lot of people don't know what those are. So agreed. Do, do you try and hit those exactly? Or do you try and keep mysteries going to keep regular viewers engaged or what? Or is there enough material there to to hit like five to seven seasons worth of uh, cliffhangers, I guess, at the end of seasons? I've shared this anecdote a lot on, on several different podcasts, but like I'm a big fan of Dan Harmon. He's the guy that did Community. He's the guy that's currently doing Rick and Morty. And he mentioned something that is like uh, he identified as a weakness of like Netflix style serialized storytelling. He's like, if mm-hmm. if a Netflix show did Wonder Woman, you would not Diana Princess Diana would not turn into Wonder Woman until at the very end of season one. Everything would be dealing with her mundane life and how shit it is and how she's lost connection with Themyscira and she's a female lawyer and maybe she gets mugged and she punches a dude through the chest in season in episode seven to give you a little taste, a little hint, or, or they did hit mm-hmm. you right in a pilot and then they'd submarine that. Um, and I feel like maybe there's a little that going on because it is weird that this show is called The Rings of Power and those rings have not even been mentioned. Sure. Like yeah. no one like who's going to make them under what circumstance are going to make them? Why are they being made like they are laying the groundwork for, I think, you know, like the elves are in decline and the dwarves have this new material that they're excited about. And the men are just like wanting to, you know, not be left behind and be outshone by these people that are more accomplished. But like to me, it'll be weird if you were in season one of the Rings of Power and mm-hmm. you don't got Rings of Power. But I also thought it was <laughs> if you had a gun to my head and said, at what season would Slip and Jimmy become Saul? I would have been like, surely at the end of season one. <laughs> if not, then surely at the end of season two. And if not, then surely uh-huh. at the end of season three after his fucking brother gets killed. And I was wrong, 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 wrong. So like, yeah, there's and that, and there's that ended up being does it in the pilot, right? <laughs> it, yes. Yeah. So I'm saying like there's not right or wrong ways, but like I the more they do this, like really, you know, again, we're talking about the rings of power. Where are these rings? What are their powers? What are they doing? Um, and we're talking about uh, the other, you know, this the stranger. Is he Saruman? Is he Gandalf? Is it? 
I, I think that like if I'll start feeling a little bit more nervous if we're going into season two and we haven't cleaned up any of those things by the finale of yeah. season one. I think you're right. But right now, no, because I, I think and in, in fact, um, I think they could have taken a little bit more time with Isildur and his family and established like by by this. I I, I want to know the nature of the West and what is that conflict and, you know, specific because they, they never even said that, like the Western shore of Numenor is where the elf lovers live. Why? Yeah. Why? Why are they treating that like a fucking secret? <laughs> I don't know. It, it does feel like they have a ticking clock, though, over in Middle Earth. Right. Because like the Southlands. It feels very much like they want Galadriel and Halbrand to meet up with the people that we know in the Southlands, uh-huh. and you can't really pump the brakes too much on that because the orcs and are I think digging going directly to. to them. If I so, were to guess, like next episode, they're going uh-huh. to like like just when all looks lost, you're going to have a right. a Helm's Deep situation where these 500 slash 300 warriors <laughs> ride <laughs> 300 warriors right. and 400 horses, yeah. Yeah, right over um, and and save the day against this teaming orc horde. Um, so yeah, but you got to line all that up, right? So some yeah. plots have to be accelerated a little bit artificially, and others have to be slowed down. And it's yeah, hitting that that natural cadence with all of these plot lines is tough. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, what I. I think mysteries are only work when the characters don't know it too. But like, I keep thinking like every time I hear this woman's voice going, Isildur, and mm-hmm. I get my email, it's like, Ooh, could it be this? Could it be that? Why the fuck don't we know? Does Isildur not know? Does Isildur, like, why isn't when he's having a conversation and his friends and his sister are like busting his balls about his crazy dreams of the West. Like you guys don't understand. Mom is, I can, I, it, you might think I'm crazy, but when I'm out on the ocean and the sea's always right. I hear mom calling me from this shore mm-hmm. and it's just fucking with me. Why can't they articulate this? Why don't we know why Anarion has gone off and where like they do. The fa- does the family not know? Why are they not talking about it in connection with uh, Isildur's desire to be pulled west? It seems ridiculous. If I had a rebellious brother who dropped out of college to join some fucking uh, military organization and I was at the family dinner talking about my desire to like check out this, it'd be weird if my brother, my dad and sister weren't talking about my brother in specifics about like, well, you know what your older brother did and he went over there and he made a real like, why aren't they having these conversations? That's what's like the maddening first to me. time that they brought this up. They wanted it to feel like this lived in world where they had had these conversations already, but it keeps coming back up. Right. And you would think, yeah, that we would get more hints of it. But we we also they want us to care about Isildur and his motivations mm-hmm. and doing the like, hey, we've talked about this a million times, right. Isildur. That's just shutting I'm it not down. Talk- yeah. It just shuts that down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, this is rookie storytellers that have the big picture stuff right. They don't have maybe the smaller stuff mm-hmm. in, in every storyline. Luke from Ireland says in this week's episode, there is a scene of the Numenorean soldiers marching through the city streets to ships out to war. It struck me as a clear evocation of uh, Peter Jackson's Return of the King when Faramir leads the Gondorian cavalry out of Minas Tirith to retake Osgiliath from Sauron's vanguard. The difference is in the rings of power, the soldiers and citizens are green and excited for the upcoming war. The Gondorians, of course, knew fighting Sauron meant death. Do you think this scene is just an aesthetic homage to Jackson or is it hinting at the Numenorians meeting the same fate uh, as Faramir's soldiers of Gondor? Mm, there's nothing but darkness I, over there. Yeah, I felt like I gave away the plot that like I, my expectation is, yeah, they're going to go to Os, the, the Os Tirith and save the day. Mm-hmm. 
but maybe not. Maybe a lot of them get get uh, their ass handed to them and uh, they're going to come back. Uh, the queen's going to be bloodied and kind of broken and Farazone's going to use that as a political machination against her. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. Look, I, I'm not familiar. Look with the what following the will of the Valar led to, you know, mm-hmm. oh, they're they 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 their tear their their tears fell from the tree and, you know, uh the gods lied and people died. I don't know, something like that. Uh, no, I think it's 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 supposed to be both. I, and and I think you you are smart to point it out that like you know the Gondorians who are already war wary and they knew this was a token gesture that wasn't going to do anything but get them killed, versus these Numenorians who are like, yeah, we're fucking big ass Numenorians and we haven't gone to war for a while, but now we're gonna we're gonna get in there and we're gonna do some good. Um, a little bit more naive view of war. Jay says, I love your podcast. It's helped me understand and appreciate the show. Thank you. I've been wondering, is the Southland storyline in the past where Numenor storyline is in the present? Um, we've talked about this previous weeks, this idea that, uh, uh, you know, we're doing a two timelines, like in a very uh, Westworld kind of way. They say, while Halbrand is in the planning room with the Queen Regent and Galadriel, they ask him where the enemy moved next. And he says the tower at Ostirith. They then cut to the orcs moving to the same tower. Did I misunderstand something this narrative? Jim, do you have a I want I want to just do a sanity check. What do you think about this before I opine? I okay. I will agree. I'm legitimately confused by that line. I was not. Oh, shit. I I didn't think about it much, um, but. Yeah, when I heard it, I was like, oh, there must be something I'm missing, too, with how he knows where the orcs ended up. I think it's more of like when you have a local commander in the battlefield and you have like these like joint strike operation leaders and they go to this guy and they're like, OK, what's the lay of the land? What do you th- I, I, I was more of like, where do you think people will go? And he's like, well, there's this tower here. Um, this is the logical defense point. All the people that live around there know it. And the the smart thing to do to be mm-hmm. to move to this tower. OK, it's not. I and know he just for says a, it fact. In a way like they're they're going here or. Yeah. You know, yeah. This they, is they went here. Yeah. This is this is the place where people would go and seek refuge at the time. Just in a similar way that like someone around Rohan would know that the king would go to Helm's Deep in a time of crisis. It wouldn't be that he's got clairvoyant powers. It's just like, well, in times of war, mm-hmm. the Rohan, this is the best place to go, you know? So they're probably going, I mean, maybe they'll go out in the fields and get slaughtered and ran down, but I'd be pretty stupid. So, and, and if they did, <laughs> we're going to go onto a pile of smoking, smoking corpses. We're not going to be able to save shit. So I took it as that. But clearly, if you were confused and Jay is confused, maybe they could have did a better job of that. Um, originally, I thought this couldn't be possible since it seemed like all the characters saw the same meteor establishing them as one, in one singular moment. But what if there's actually two separate events with two separate meteors? Oh, oh shit. Boy. Oh, sh- what if we got a Sauron meteor and a Gandalf meteor? <laughs> oh, my God. What if we and have they two Norris? Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, yeah. One well, is to... dealing with an ice Gandalf and one's dealing with a fire <laughs> Sauron. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it's also said, you know, because like John's favorite pet theory is that there is this is one of the two blue wizards. She's like, well, what if this is both of the blue wizards? Oh, man. So, again, I don't I think that I think that everyone seeing the meteor was trying to convince us that this is all happening at the same time in the same place. But. Yeah. I also can't completely discount the idea that they might be being tricked. I would think that that would be 
not wise to add a level of timey-wimey, twisty bullshit on top of an already kind of complicated narrative. Um, Because every time you do stuff like that, I feel like it puts the audience at one level of remove. And -hmm. you got the extreme uh, uh, situation on Westworld where there's really no reason to care about the individual characters. Like it's so far much, so much a cerebral exercise that it's like all, Mm -hmm. all about the plot and all about the what's happening. But absolutely. I feel like going forward, the scene with Al Rond where he debates on whether to break his oath after he's already broken it by showing Celebrimbor the mithril is going to be like a touchstone for me where I just say a lot of this can be just chalked up to error to, bad writing or or like oversights or something like that in the scripts i because there's unfortunate they made that error so early because now i will look back on i will look at everything that they do through that lens and say they could just have messed up there yeah and like i i think there's ways to make that scene work like if you say like celebrimbor is an elf and he doesn't lie and break his oaths and uh elrond has sworn him in a similar way to durin did and this is like stronger than like you go to your best friend and be like okay i wasn't supposed to tell anybody this but i'm telling you you're my best friend and celebrimbor could be like yeah like there's a ways you can make that literally be true but i I, the more (laughs) i've thought about it the more i think you're right like that was just an unforced error he's already broken his vow he has yeah yeah, um, he could have been debating he, he whether been, to break just, the vow. Well, he could have just been debating whether to tell Durin that he had broken the vow, right? Like, yeah, but in in his own terms, yeah. So it's going to be because because that because that's like he could be weighing the morals of like if I tell Durin what I'm actually after, then he's going. This is going to like he it'll break. It'll, I've already broken his trust, but he'll know it. And he'll be more guarded, and it might be less likely to complete my mission of getting the mithril at any cost. Mm-hmm. But if I trust him, then maybe he'll give it to me mm-hmm. because he loves me and by extension, my people. I, I think that's the real tension. It and is. they just kind of fumbled the bag and trying to tell it. Yeah. Which is exactly so, my point. Like they they might just not be perfect storytellers, which I'm always going to come back to. Yeah. And who knows? Like they could have like they, they got they get like roughly eight episodes. They get eight episodes, eight hours to tell the story. If they shot 12, who knows what kind mm-hmm. of mess got made in editing where they're just trying to shut, cut, you know, and then hone it down to the story they want to tell. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Caitlin says, I want to ask about the scene between Elrond and Gilgalad after dinner because emotionally I was all over the place, specifically with the hope dialogue that Aaron mentioned. Maybe because I like Elrond and his friendship with Durin so much, but hope is never mere Elrond, even when it's meager, felt manipulative to me. Maybe it's just knowing that Elrond is still talking about this fading light in Lord of the Rings, however many hundreds, thousands of years later. But I struggle getting an inspiring, hopeful message from someone who just admitted to lying and using you and doesn't seem concerned with any uh, stakes outside of those that are elven. Then the very next. Well, let's talk about that first. Um, yeah, it's definitely manipulating him. The thing is, is like the Elrond. I think the Le- Elrond in Lord of the Rings is very different. He's a father now. He is worried that his daughter's going to make mistakes and they're going to be separate instead of being able to uh, enjoy companionship forever, which is what elves, I think, expected their children, that she's going to uh, deliberately choose this man and die in despair in Middle Earth, which I don't think any parent like I don't know. Like, that's the thing. It's like 
to me, it's like, uh, what if my son came up to me and said, Dad, I'm really thinking about doing this heroin thing because it's going to give me such intense bliss. And I'd be like, it'll give you intense bliss for like three, four months, and then it's going to be fucking requiem for a goddamn dream. You're going to lose your arm. You're going to get you're going to have to go ass to ass. It's going to he's like, you know, you don't get it, Dad. Those three to six months of bliss are going to be worth it. I think you're supposed to understand that that's what that's what Arwen is choosing from Elrond's perspective. She's choosing mm-hmm. the heroine because, again, according to the appendixes of Lord of the Rings, everything that Elrond predicts comes true in the fullness of time. Aragorn does die uh, and she is bereft and she fades away into a shade and a ghost alone and friendless and everything. Like it's a it's it's get yeah it's going ass to ass at the end of a Amer- uh, requiem for a dream, so like <laughs> I'm not even sure like <laughs> and I never thought about this until I thought about this in the context of the show and like the fact that like you know go rereading the appendixes and like oh my god like what Elrond was saying what happened to her is just literally him quote for quote for the appendix that's hmm. I don't know is it. Were those couple hundred years of bliss with Aragon worth the literally thousands and of unending years that she could have had in paradise with her father and the rest of her family? I think she gets to make that decision, but like you can question the wisdom of it. Yeah. I Um, wouldn't take it. No. And like I said, I don't. Yeah, I don't. mm. Anyway, um, Caitlin then continues the very next line. When all others sense asleep, the eye of hope is first awake and last to shut. I also did not take anything inspirational out of this. Instead, I'm sitting up trying to understand why they're using the eye metaphor here, because all this made me think as an avid movie watcher is the eye of Sauron and all the theories about who in the show is actually Sauron or being deceived by him. Why do you invoke that connection here? Is this a foothold for Sauron's influence? Um, what do you think about that? Because I thought this was kind of weak. You know, they talk about the eyes of the Valar being on them, too, but they're not evil. They're just sure. sometimes an eye is just being 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 watchful, being awake. It doesn't necessarily be, you know. <laughs> yeah, evil. it depends on the purpose you're being uh, watched for. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I'm I'm generally I feel what you're saying here. Like, I don't uh, I, I think the idea that this guy is trying to inspire Elrond and using the terms of hope and salvation and all this stuff while at the same time having having admitted that he's manipulating him I think it does undermine it right like how can I take anything you say seriously here if you just admitted to manipulating me why is this not just another one of your manipulations uh you don't have any principles. You can't invoke the name of hope and expect me to believe you. I, I get what you're saying. Um, it, then there's the tension of like, do you make the elves these perfect, flawless people who don't lie or manipulate or do anything other than speak truth all the time? Or do you make them interesting characters to watch on television? Yeah. And they're trying to do both. And I don't, I think each part of that is undermining the other part. So, I don't know. I'm with you. There's a lot more Rings of Power to ponder. We'll be back right after this short break. And now, let's dig a little deeper on Dug Too Deep. Uh, 
Uh, finally, she says, I don't know how the rings of power will be offered or what their specific powers are, but Kate Blanchett says in the Fellowship prologue that three rings went to the Elven Lords, so it makes sense that Gilgalad as the king might receive one, correct? I don't know. Based on the distrust I have for Gilgalad, plus the use of eye imagery here, I'm expecting the rings of power and or Sauron to be connected to this mithril somehow. You brainstorm ways the mithril could be absorbed slash snorted, etc. Could it be distributed <laughs> to the elves via Celebrimbor magic powered forged rings? So given that this show is called the rings of power, I'm going to trust that the show is going to very much explain these rings that are given to the nine lords of men, to the seven dwarf lords, to the three elf lords. And if you want to know a little bit more of a deep dive, I recommend listening to the Lorehound Second Age podcast, chapter four in particular, the rings of power, because they talk about from, Mm. you know, what each of these three, because we I'll say that. Well, I don't want to say anymore, because, again, these could be very real spoilers for what's to come. But if you want to know, this has already been discussed by the Lorehounds, and I think they did a really good job uh, breaking down what we know of each of the classes of rings and in particular what the rings of power that the elves had and what their purpose was and what they're getting at. But I, you know, again, for people that don't want to kind of know, uh uh, we're going to leave that in the archives. But if you're listening to any feed, you know, if you're listening either on Bald Move Pulp or Dug Too Deep, scroll back in the archives, find that chapter four, and uh, all the answers are there. And this is going to serve for our gateway into the lore corner. We're going to invite uh, John from the Lorehounds now to answer a couple of questions that kind of delve. Did, did Dug Too Deep for me and Jim? Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's do that now. Welcome back to Dug Too Deep, John, and thanks for joining us once again on our lore corner. Thanks for having me, Aaron. We'll get right to it. E-Hoops up first. It says, regarding the tower at Ostirith, you'll note at the 58-minute mark that there's three spiraled rings around the tower, which match the three spiraled rings on the Morgul hilt. It seems obvious this sword was some kind of key to unlocking the tower at its full potential. At the 57-19 mark, you see the Mask of Sauron with the completed Morgul blade below it. Either Sauron gets the sword that completes the tower, or completing the sword generates a finished tower. It's on the edge of the mountains in the middle of what will be Mordor. I think it's going to be Barad-dûr when it's done. I'd give good odds. Uh, he says that uh, this is also going to be non-canon since the foundation of the tower was made with the one ring. I didn't know any of this details. I was wondering to see if you could confirm his understanding of this and what do you th- what what's your scale of 1 to 10? What's the plausibility? And oh, the other thing I was going to ask is like, do you think these three rings on the hilt have anything to do with the three rings of elvish power? All right, I'll take that in pieces. Uh, it's a as lot. far <laughs> as the yeah, as far as the foundation, um, I think that yes, the One Ring was part of the making of Barador. Although I don't think it was uh, necessarily the foundation of it; it just was a piece of it. Um, oh, maybe we should back up and say Barador for people <clears throat> who are just oh, you true. know, like it, it might not be clear. You know, the two towers in the movie, the two towers. Well, one is Orthanc, and that's a place where Saruman kind of camped. And then the other Barad-dûr was the tower that always had the flaming eye at the top of it throughout the movie series. That's where Sauron uh, kind of camped out in uh, right. in uh, uh, the, the Mordor. Mordor. <laughs> yeah, and it was around in the Second Age, so this would be even if it's not like the same exact way it gets made. I'm okay with that. That's a fine lore change. Uh, but really. I think that they need to make Barador soon because Barador sort of began in the Second Age uh, during around the same time as the Rings of Power are forged. Uh, and 
we can see that that's a necessary device going forward. So I hope that we see it get made soon. I could see the season sort of ending with maybe the founding of Barador and the establishment of Mor- Mordor as the base of evil. It would be because what, what was your other question there? Uh, well, I'm going to I want to springboard off of that. And oh, that sure. like I, I do like that, that like there's something about the uh, elves unwitting, you know, unwitting accomplishes accomplices to Sauron's works here. Although, do you is it strike as a bit goofy that the elves had camped in this, you know, I guess, reclaimed tower of the enemy. I had, I had a lot of questions about why this thing looked to be in apparent ruins, like because I to my mind, the elves just left. Uh, and it just felt, but no, this is apparently an old ruins that they've been camping and using as their base of operations. Does it seem goofy to you that like they didn't realize that this was connected to Sauron when if you just pull down some plants, like there is a big old, you know, bass relief statue to Sauron and and uh, him completing his sword and his tower and all this stuff? Well, a lot of previous tenants leave furniture, but uh, yeah, I think that is a little goofy that they either didn't notice or they said, oh, let's not look at it. Let's just ignore it. So, I don't know. That's a storytelling issue, not really a lore issue. Uh, so, we'll see what they do with it. Did you think that there's a connection between the three rings on the, the hilt the three uh, and the three rings of elvish power? I guess that was the other. And I, I guess that's what we're both mm-hmm. saying, is that there might be some key component in the creation of these rings are going to bring about the the creation of the this tower, the foundation of this tower. Or, there, or I guess the since the tower already exists, the uh, ultimate you know, final evolution of this tower. Well, the three elven rings were actually the three rings that Sauron did not have a part in. That's like the, they are explicitly free from his direct influence. Gotcha. So I don't think that that would be connected, but maybe they're trying to tell us anyway. Hmm. They could, they could throw us another lore curveball there. Mm -hmm. Um, He's also, also, he continues to says if Adar is trying to destroy the sun and the moon, that'd be a nice side nod to the 1980s middle earth role-playing game. One of the campaign plots were the Southern Elves plotting to destroy the Great Lights, which is non-canon made up for the game, to restore the stars as the primary lights under which the Elves awoke, which is canon, he says. In fact, the title of that Mm -hmm. campaign was The Court of Ardor. Ardor and Adar aren't too dissimilar sounding. Do you think that, uh, first of all, who owns the rights to these semi-canonical RPGs from the early 80s? Because who knows? (laughs) I wonder, um, you know, the showrunners, uh, how much Tolkien stuff did they read? Like, how far afield did they range? Do you think there's any connection to what they're trying to do in these obscure RPG campaigns or no? Well, first of all, I'd say when you look at the mid to late 20th century, there was a lot of funny business going around with U.S. copyright. And Mm. for a period of time, and I don't remember the exact years, it was actually unclear if you could just use Tolkien's work freely. Really? I did not know that. And so there was a company publishing The Lord of the Rings without his consent and without his profit for a while. And it took a really long time and like a fan campaign of buy Tolkien's real books, buy the ones that he makes money from uh, to get this going to get this gone so i don't know if that was in this period but it could be in that shaky period of copyright hmm. um and then i mean i think that this is just not accurate to lore of elves trying to destroy the the sun and moon i mean they love they like the light of the trees better than they like the uh the stars now at the same time there are these elves called the avari who were they uh, refused the to call right yeah mm-hmm. they so 
they did prefer Middle Earth. They chose to stay in Middle Earth. But it should be noted that at the time that they chose to stay, it was still lit by the two trees. Like, the sure. light of the two trees hit the whole world. So it's not like they were just addicted to starlight or something. So gotcha. I don't know. I think that this is just a fun little campaign in the world. Okay. Let's move on to Lucas from Sweden, who says he's loving our coverage of the show so far. Thank you, Lucas. Both you guys and the Lorehounds have presented some interesting theories about who Adar could be. I really like some of these theories, but have, after this episode, come up with one I haven't heard discussed anywhere. In the Fellowship of the Ring movie, Saruman says that the orcs were created when the Dark Lord tortured and mutilated elves. I know that in Tolkien's writing, there are conflicting ideas of how orcs were created. But going with this, with what Saruman says in the movies, the orcs do come from the elves. My theory is hints that Adar is the original template for the orcs, that Morgoth and Sauron based the orcs on him. So explain why the orcs refer to him as father, since technically he is the father of the race. But also explain why he thinks uh, he will be a god. If the orcs conquer Middle-earth, he would be worshipped throughout the entire land. In the latest episode, we saw how Adar got upset when Waldrig called him Sauron. This could be because Sauron and Morgoth did experiments on him to create the orcs, experiments that are painful, and we see that Adar has several scars. Maybe this rift between Sauron and Adar has some orcs stay with Sauron, while some now follow Adar. What do you think about Adar being the uh, literal father of the orc race? Uh, I think it's kind of cool, actually. I think that that would be an interesting origin story. I mean, we've talked about on our podcast how that's sort of a controversial origin story because sure. Tolkien was weird about it towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll hear Tolkien scholar Marilyn Pukilu has been on our podcast a few times. Uh, she talks about how Tolkien even considered getting rid of the whole creation story with the trees uh, and replacing it with the sun and moon right away. So he had a lot of doubts later in life. So maybe we don't have to, like, erase everything earlier. Uh, so I'd be okay with it if he was a proto-orc. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I could see that. I could see our Fallen Elves theory, the the hostage theory. Uh, or I know people are talking about Maglor from the first stage maybe being Adar. Uh, so there's a lot of possibilities right now. We don't really have, have clues you talked as to on which one. Your, your other podcast, Mag, because I haven't heard uh, the your guys' podcast that just come out today that you did with Jim. Uh, I, I haven't heard his Maglor guy before. Have you talked about that? Okay, so, yeah, we did some Maglor on feedback, and Maglor is one of the uh, two members of the Noldor, two sons of Feanor, that held a Silmaril uh, towards the end of the First Age and got burned from it, and then threw his Silmaril into the sea and disappeared, and we never heard of him again. So that's sort of what leaves the door open to him being there now. That's how that got lost in the sea. Somebody got too hot in the kitchen. Uh, Yep. All right, and I've I've definitely heard that theory that he's one of those uh, the elves that got burned. Um, all right, cool. Um, I'm I, like I said, I the Jim and I were talking on our feedback portion today about how um, surely they can't stretch the mystery of like who the stranger is and who Adar is past this first season. Like we need to get some kind of reveal on that, or it's going to feel like uh, what did uh, uh, Bilbo say? Is they're hanging on the bell too long? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, uh, do you do you agree with that? Do you think they can keep that mystery going, or do they need to kind of get this dispensed with this season so we can get on with the real? Because a mystery is not a story. A mystery is a way right. to keep people enticed to get into the story. But like I've definitely seen before, where it can get in the way of the story. I think we need to at least know what they are i don't think we need to have their whole backstory okay i think we need to at least know is is the stranger one of the astari or is he sauron Mm -hmm. and then we need to know 
what is Adar? Is he actually an elf? Is he some sort of elf? Is he proto-orc? Uh, and sort of who is he working with by the end of the season. Now, I could I could have, like, cold opens next season showing him escaping Morgoth and being rejected by his gotcha. people or something like that. But uh, but I, I think we need to know at least part of their identity. I like that idea, the cold open, kind of similar to uh, seeing Gandalf's Titanic battle with the Balrog after the yeah. fact. You know, open with something that gives you a little bit more information, but already tells you something, you know, that you might have already noted an inkling of. I like that. Uh, where do people go if they want to hear more Lorehounds this season? Yeah, you can check out the Lorehounds, the Rings of Power Lorecast. That's our fire hose feed that's going to have everything we do forever till the end of time. Uh, you can send us feedback at secondage at baldmove.com if you want to get directly to us. We're on Twitter, we're on Discord, on the Bald Move Discord, and uh, we hope to hear from you. All right, thanks again, John. Thanks, Aaron. All right, thanks once again to John for helping us with the lore heavy lifting. If you want to get the Lorehound's perspective on how they're enjoying the series and the uh, deep dives into the Easter eggs and kind of the lore-centric stuff, I highly recommend you check them out. Search for the Lorehounds on your favorite podcast app to follow along with them. You can follow along Bald Move on twitter.com slash baldmove. Uh, you can f- uh, chat with us and the Lorehounds on our Discord, discord.baldmove.com. Of course, if you're interested in helping support us and uh, keeping the bits flowing and getting a lot more bonus content and ad-free feeds, you can check out support.baldmove.com for all the ways you can support us. Please send feedback for The Rings of Power to Doug2Deep at baldmove.com for consideration for next week's feedback podcast. But until uh, the, the main podcast on Friday, I am your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. We'll see you then.